You're listening to the Rut Ambush Podcast. And here are your hosts, Chad Cottle and Tommy Engram. Welcome back to the Rut Ambush Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Cottle, along with Tommy Engram. And today we have the pleasure to interview one of the great white-tailed deer hunters in the industry today, and that's John Eberhardt. John is a phenomenal guy, down to earth, great to talk to, and John has decades of experience in the deer woods. And if you go to John's website at eberhartswhitetailworkshop.com, one of the first pictures that pops up is John's trophy wall. And go to his website, take a look at that, and it will speak for itself. But what's cool about John is is he is one of the pioneers of saddle hunting of mobile hunting and he was he was saddle hunting before it was the popular thing to do um and the other cool thing about john is he hunts exclusively on public land and land that he has obtained permission to hunt so he doesn't he goes knocking on doors he doesn't pay a dime uh, for the for the land that he hunts he doesn't hunt managed land uh john doesn't hunt over bait doesn't hunt over minerals he goes out he puts the work in he does the scouting and one thing that tommy and i have talked about on this podcast is you know our setups our ambush locations aren't really conducive to playing the wind so we really have to concentrate on scent control and and john kind of takes that same approach he he concentrates more on where the deer are at not what what the wind's doing at that time so he's very scent control conscious and you know so he shares that sentiment with us but i really think you guys are going to enjoy this interview and i think you're going to learn a lot so i hope you enjoy it all right well we're on with uh john eberhart on the rut ambush podcast we're excited to have you john welcome well thank you i'm uh glad you invited me so john this is one of the things man we've been um we've we've been contacting um guests and um, we, I, I, I found you on, I found you on, uh, YouTube actually. And one of the videos I saw you do like just blew me away about your tactics. And w- I mean, we're, we're really happy to have you on for, for that reason, for you to kind of give us an insight of how you get the job done. I also saw a picture of you with your wall full of bucks and it's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, to give you a little bit of history, I've been uh, bow hunting a little over 50 seasons. Um, I'm from from Michigan, and I have 31 bucks in the Michigan record book. And I've taken, uh, and that's from 19 different properties in 10 different counties. And I've taken 19 Pope and Young bucks on 23 out-of-state hunts. And that was off 13 different properties in five different states. And I think what separates my accomplishments from, without question, anybody, any other hunter in the country is 100% of my hunting has always been exclusively done on public and knock on doors for pre-permission properties. So no management, no leases, no food plots, no bait. Um, you know, there's lots of guys that have bucks in the book from a spectacular piece of property or managed properties. And uh, I don't do any of that. I've never paid a dime to hunt any place in my life. I just work harder than most other hunters. Sure. That's very, that's very impressive. That's something to be proud of. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Hey, uh, you know, we're from Ohio, obviously. Mm-hmm. So we won't hold the fact that you're from Michigan against you. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. You, you, you got know, that right. We, that you may root for a certain team that we don't really care for, but we won't really get into that too much. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I don't know if you do or not, but you're from that state, so. I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of a casual sporty sports guy. I played sports in school. That I'm a Big Ten fan, and what you guys did in the first BCS uh, playoffs, uh, I was all over that. I was so geeked when you guys beat Alabama. That was awesome. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, we were pretty pumped too. Believe me. But hey, hey, back John, to hunting, John. Real quick, so um, for this, I'm asking you this for my own personal reason because I know that when I first started out, I, I wasn't any good. And I, and I learned tactics over the, over time that made, made me a lot better. How, how have you, how has your hunting evolved from the time that you started to now? Uh, well, nobody in my family hunted, so I'm self-taught, which uh, I think overall is a good thing. Because uh, when you're mentored by older people, typically you follow the older people's methods, which are relatively generic. Mm-hmm. So I've always been a pretty detail-oriented guy, and uh, I've always been a solo guy. You know, my sports in in school were all solo sports. They weren't team sports. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's just who I am. I've always been a a kind of a a solitude person when it comes to activities. And and I think that's also helped me in my hunting because, obviously – when you're hunting by yourself and you don't have a mentor, per se, um, you learn by experience. You know, when you make mistakes, you don't repeat those mistakes. And uh, and when you're hunting, when you're hunting by yourself, when you do make a mistake, you definitely remember it, and you know you put it in your bag. Whereas if you make them, if you're being mentored and you make mistakes. Typically, the person that's mentored you has made have made the same mistakes. So hey, it's okay. You know, you, you're doing everything right. You just, you know, that was just you just messed up there. So I, I think being self-taught was a good deal, and I also think being a solo hunter is a phenomenal deal for being more successful. Anytime you hunt by yourself, you're far more apt to be more successful than you are hunting with a group of people. Less scent in the woods, less noise, um, less people to make the, the, the hunt in the same manner. Um, I, I just think being a sole solitude hunter uh, is a lot. It leads to more success than being a guy that hunts with a group of guys. You know, I, I always look back at Miles Keller, who was probably the only guy in the bow hunting industry that I ever followed and respected. And Miles Keller, when I would see him at the ATA show, the archery shows, he was always walking by himself. You never saw him with anybody else. He was a solitude guy and um, one of the best hunters of all time, in my opinion. He, he, I don't even know if you guys know who he is because he's more from the late 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. No, I don't think either one of us. No, we'll definitely have to research that for sure. <clears throat> I got a quick another another question. Something you mentioned is um, you you already mentioned about how uh, heavily pressured deer are a lot dif- more more difficult of an animal to hunt. Um, wh- how why is it different hunting 
like a state like Michigan as opposed to like Iowa? That would be the same difference as feeling comfortable walking through a small rural city in Ohio at 3 a.m. versus walking through inner city Chicago in a crime-laden area at 3 a.m. It'd be the same thing. As a human with a brain, you know that walking through inner city Chicago in the middle of the night is dangerous because there's a lot of people out there and you're much more vulnerable. Whereas walking through a little rural city in Ohio where there is no known danger, probably we would be perfectly acceptable to you. Same deal in, you know, the soldiers in Iraq. As long as they're in the compound, they feel comfortable. As soon as they walk outside the compound, they feel very vulnerable because there's a lot more people trying to kill them outside the compound than inside the compound. That's so very hunting, good analogy. Pressure, hunting pressure makes all the difference in the world, you know. When you are a buck that's allowed to grow to maturity until you're four and a half years old before you get targeted, obviously you pass by hunters as you're growing up, and therefore... You don't have to change your movements because there's been no negative consequences when you walk by other hunters. Uh, you're a lot more comfortable with human odor. You're a lot more comfortable with you know, bad calling or whatever. And by the time you reach the kill criteria, you're just a dumber animal than a buck in a heavily pressured area where there's 10 times more hunters per square mile and every single one of them is trying to kill a year-and-a-half-old antlered buck that's legal. Mm -hmm. You know, very few bucks, very few bucks survive beyond one and a half and very 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 few bucks survive beyond two and a half in heavily pressured areas whereas when i went to kansas and iowa you know i'll see as many three and four and five and a half year olds bucks as i will three and a half and four and a half and five and a half year old does so you know it's it's a totally 100 percent different picture uh, they're not even comparable you hunt iowa Here, iowa kansas nebraska southern illinois uh you know or or a lot of other states, even Ohio, Michigan, there's in Michigan where guys alone six hundred, seven, eight hundred acres and it's totally one hundred percent micromanaged and they've got the bedding areas on their property to hold the deer. They got enough does where they don't have to travel outside of that property during the rut. You know, there's enough does to keep them there. So even even though almost one hundred percent of Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, Southern Illinois falls into that category, there's there's little portions of every state that fall into that category nowadays because there's lots of people that own lots of land and manage it. When, when you find yourself on some of those properties that, that may be managed or ha have less hunting pressure, does your criteria change for the, the caliber of deer that you want to kill? Oh, absolutely. When I go to Kansas, my criteria is 150 inches, wow. and that's on a week hunt. My criteria in Michigan, if I can kill a pope, and if I can even see a pope and young buck in a full, you know, three month season, I'm happy. <laughs> I'll see I'll see twelve to eighteen pope and young bucks in a week in Kansas. Oh man! So well, when you go out, when when you have that, you know, those expectations in your mind before you even go out, will you eat a tag if you don't see that caliber deer? Yeah, I ate a tag this year. Okay. Yeah, I ate my Kansas tag this year. I'm 19 for 23 out of state and. And the four years I was unsuccessful, I definitely could have killed a Pope and Young Buck. Well, the, okay, something just came into my mind here, and I, and I don't know why it did, but i got to ask you this question. When you killed your – go back to that first big deer that you ever killed. 
Do you still have the same feeling when you when you kill one now? No. What's it like now? How's it different? It's like I completed a job. It's. I mean, I hate to say that. I still get excited. Do not get me wrong. I still get a little bit of a shake. But <laughs> I'll tell you an interesting story. I've got 68 deer heads in a local sporting goods store, and I got five my five biggest ones in my house. And about Eight years ago, I got a three-inch, well, three-and-a-half-inch spike horn mounted, which was the first buck I ever shot with a bow back in the early 60s. And I got it mounted, and I was hanging it up. You know, I bought a cape from somebody. And the guys, there's like three or four guys come over from the archery department. It's a huge store. And they said, what the hell are you hanging that thing up with all those big bucks? And I said, uh, because when I shot that spike horn, I was more excited than, I, than any other deer on this wall. It's just a different day. Back back in, I hate to say the old days, but back in the 70s, uh, according to DNR stats in Michigan, only 2% of bow hunters killed a buck with a bow. And I'm just talking a legal buck, you know, three-inch spikes or bigger. Wow. Uh, nowadays, it's 28 to 30% kill an antlered buck with a bow. So, yeah, times have just changed. There's a lot more deer. There's a lot more bigger deer because people are passing them up, so... Uh, it, it's just a little bit different, but yeah, I still, I still get excited when I see a big buck coming in, especially in Michigan where they're so rare. Um, I, I, I will be perfectly honest when I'm in Kansas and I see a 125 incher come in, I, it, I don't even think about reaching for my bow. Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm all over it and shake, you know, I'm well, shaking. That's going to be my buck for the year. Well, that being said, John, you know, I know you're in the hunting industry and, and that's, you know what you do so you know is it is it take the fun out of it now that it's more like a job and it's just like mission completed rather than just the thrill of the hunt i mean do you miss that i love the competition of the hunt i that's why i hunt in michigan i i suffer in michigan until gun season because i don't gun hunt but mm-hmm. i i suffer in michigan until the 14th of november and then that's when i go out of state because i love the competition uh, I love trying to outsmart the other hunters on the properties I'm hunting and, you know, trying to get myself on the, the biggest buck on the property. I always, I've been that way since the mid seventies. So I still get excited and, uh, I, I still love it. So you love the challenge and, and I take it that's why, uh, you said you've always hunted public land or, or land that you got permission to hunt. Um, right. but you know, I take it that's why you, you do prefer to hunt public land and and uh so it brings us oh, into you know tactics and stuff like yeah would you be would you be willing to talk some tactics with us tonight sure absolutely well let's let's start in the spring what what are you what do you it's what is it it's february now what are you what are you going to be doing here coming up to get to get going well as soon as i get over being sick <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh which have been for three weeks ever since I got back from the SHOT Show in Vegas. You must, you must have had what I just got over. I just got over it about a week ago. It, that was, that I, was, I was down for three weeks. Terrible. Really? Yep. Terrible. Man, oh, man. Anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Um, back in the mid-'70s, I started postseason scouting almost exclusively. In other words... When I'd go out during preseason and scout, everything was green. Everything looked dense. It was just a totally, and on public land, it just gave me a false sense of what was really there. 
because typically the bucks that I was killing when I the years I would kill something decent, it was during the rut phases when all the foliage was down and it, the the property looked in the area looked totally different. So I started scouting in the mid seventies during March and April before spring greenup. And that's what I always do now. I've done that ever since then. So if I get a new piece of property or I want to scout a new piece of public land uh, or I want to go in and prep a new location on some property I may be hunting or a piece of public land I may be hunting, I always do that in the spring. Because in the spring, you can go in and you can scrutinize every inch of the property and you can go in there and spook every deer out of there for a week straight. You can go in there from daylight till dark for a week straight, spook every deer, because it's irrelevant. You know, those deer are going to be back in there, you know, by fall with no problem if you're in there doing that in February, March, or April. So you can scrutinize every inch of the property. The scrapes are still prevalent. You can still see primary scrapes. The licking branches are still obvious. Uh, runways are still obvious once the snow melts. Scrapes, obviously, wait till the snow melts. Uh, scouting in the snow is worthless. Um, and and basically, all the foliage is down. So you're basically looking at the area very similarly and the trees to what they're going to look like in pre-rut and rut when all the foliage is down. So you can actually get a real sense of does this have adequate perimeter security cover and adequate transition security cover from a known bedding area for daytime activity by a mature buck. Because for mature bucks in a pressured area, and this is not the case in lightly pressured states and stuff, you have to have security cover. Everything I do in Michigan is based around security cover because without security cover at the location, at the, around the perimeter of the location, let's say at an apple tree or a white oak or a transition zone between two bedding areas or a transition zone between a bedding and a feeding area, if there's not adequate transition and transition security cover from a bedding area to where you're at and adequate security cover around the location you're at, your odds of a daytime visit are pretty close to zero by a mature buck. Yeah, you may see some one-and-a-half and two-and-a-half-year-olds, but you're not going to see a mature buck. To give you an example, let's say there's a bedding area, a known bedding area, and then there's some open timber with no understudy, and then there's an apple tree that's loaded with apples. Now, the apple tree has good perimeter security cover around it, but the deer in the bedding area would have to walk through this open timber with no understudy to access that apple tree if they wanted to come there and feed at it in the evening. They're just not going to do that. You know, does and subordinate bucks will, but a mature buck in a heavily pressured area is just not going to do that. Now, if there's some sort of a transition zone from that bedding area to that apple tree or white oak tree or scrape area, and there's adequate security cover in that transition zone and around that uh, particular destination location, yeah, then there's an excellent chance he would visit that during daylight hours because he's got immediate exit security cover. Okay. Um, so I want to kind of get into basically your, your saddle hunting. Okay. Um, you've been, you know, it's just now kind of becoming in vogue, right? Um, but you've been doing it since the early eighties. So would you say you're, you're maybe, uh, kind of a pioneer as far as saddle hunting goes? Oh, without it at all. Yeah. I've, 
I don't think there's any question I put more hours in the saddle hunting than anybody on the face of the earth. Yeah, and we've talked about it before, and you, you won't hunt out of anything else, right? I wouldn't even consider hunting out of a tree stand. No way. They, to me, they're archaic. I hate to say that. Uh, you know, if if, uh, if I had no option to hunt out of, other than hunting out of a tree stand, I, I'd consider hunting out of a lone wolf because they're pretty light, and they kind of blend into a tree. They're lighter colored, and uh, they're not a big profile. But, uh, yeah, I if I had to back up to going hunting out of a tree like I did in the 70s, um, it would back up my career dramatically. A lot of the bucks I've killed, I wouldn't have killed out of the tree stand. So you started in a tree stand. You ever do any, you know, ground blind hunting or anything? Oh, yeah. I, I still hunt out of ground. Well, I'm not going to say pop-up blinds, but, you know, man-made ground blinds. I still once in a while will kill a deer out of a ground blind made out of natural debris in the area. But, uh I've hunted out of a saddle since uh, saddle harness type system since 1981, but I started bow hunting back in the early 60s. What it, what's the tactical advantage of a saddle? I know it's lighter. I mean, more mobile. But I mean, why why are you so, you know, hell bent? I guess on on just using a saddle. Are you ready? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First of all, it's made out of fabric, so it's totally quiet you never have to worry about noise weighs about a pound and a half to two pounds so it fits in my backpack you don't wear Uh, yours in i don't wear mine in no i do not i I roll it up about it's about the size of a softball and i just put it in my backpack with my layering garments and my other bow hunting gear Mm -hmm. a lot of hunters wear them in which is fine uh i just choose not to i put mine on at the base of the tree okay so because there are some ropes and some loops on it that could potentially, if you're bucking any brush, hook up on stuff and make, you know, walking a little bit more difficult. So because it, it rolls up so small, there's really no need to wear it in. Now, some of the older stuff, you know, like the Trophy Line Saddle or the Arrow Hunter Revolution by New Tribe, uh, those are pretty big and pretty cumbersome. So, yeah, those need to be wore in, worn in. Those are those are usually four to six pounds. So the new stuff out, like the Mantis by Tethered, it's it's like a, I think the saddle itself weighs 15 ounces. Wow. And it rolls up definitely smaller than a softball. And then you got two ropes that go with it. So very, very small, very, very lightweight, easily fits in your backpack. So basically you look at it, it's made out of fabric, so it's totally quiet. Very lightweight, fits in your backpack. Major advantage. Probably the biggest advantage, one of the two or three biggest advantages, I can shoot 360 degrees around any tree. And any hunter that tells me that they can set up a tree stand where they know a deer is going to come from a certain direction and they don't have to shoot to the backside of the tree, unless maybe they're against a big-ass deep river, is a liar. Because during the rut, bucks chase does on unpredictable routes. Yep. So anybody that says... It can predict where a buck is going to be is definitely lying. So I can shoot 360 degrees around any tree. I can use the tree as a blocker. Let's say I'm hunting in an apple tree or a white oak or just primary scrape area. Anytime you're at a feeding destination spot, like a, an apple tree or a pear tree or a white oak, there's going to be multiple deer standing there feeding for 10 to 20 minutes at times. And any hunter knows you know, when they pick up an apple or an acorn, 
you know, they'll they'll lift their head back up, their ears are flipping around, their eyes, their head's moving around, they're listening, they're watching. And if you're in a tree stand, you kind of have to be kicked off to the side of the tree to get a shot to that destination spot. So you are very easily picked, especially once the foliage is down. With a saddle, I'm 100% on the back side of the tree from the destination spot. So I'm just peeking around the corner of the tree and when I want to take my shot, I just slightly swing to the side and take my shot. Now, usually when there's does and fawns there, I just, in sporting the bucks that I don't want to shoot, I just stay on the back side of the tree. So, you know, there's no, no big yank. I'm not going to shoot anything. And then typically if a decent buck comes in, well, the other deer leave. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to stand there and typically eat with a big mature buck there during pre-rod or rut. So they typically leave. And then I just keep my eye on him, and then when he puts himself in a position and puts his head down or turns his head, that's when I just slightly lean to my left and take that shot. But there's steps all the way around the tree, so you can move around the tree to stay blocked behind the trunk or shoot any direction at any time you want. Uh, There's no limit to the size of the tree you can hunt with uh, hang-ons, there's definitely a size limit to the tree you can hunt. And with climbers, you're limited to trees with no branches, and you're limited to trees that will fit the diameter of whatever the climber you have. Uh, Let's see, trees that are leaning up to 15 degrees, you can hunt, or you can't do that with any climber or hang-on. So with a saddle, you can go up trees with with branches and get around those? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can use as part of your stuff. I do it all the time. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You definitely, yeah. You want to look for trees with branches. You do not. I never like hunting a straight trunk tree like you'd have to have with a climber. Right. I can't even fathom hunting out of a climber because you stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge platform. Yeah, I've done it a few times. It's rough for sure. So you can hunt leaning trees. Uh, the harness also doubles as a safety climbing harness. So basically. You know, you can use just the the safety rope and use your, you know, tethered mantis saddle for prepping trees, screwing in steps, hanging sticks, whatever. It's not only just something you hunt out of, you can actually use it for prepping locations. Uh, You can have a thousand locations prepped and you're only going to hunt out of one. That one saddle is in your backpack all the time. So all the trees you have prepped, you can hunt out of any of them at any point. So it, it basically makes you, especially if you own, own your own property, it makes you prep a lot more trees. And then, you know, like there may be years you, you prep a white oak or an, an apple tree or at a primary scrape area. And, you know, maybe every three years this oak produces acorns. Well, that's the only year you're going to hunt it. But you've got your saddle with you and the tree's prep, you know, if you're using steps or spikes or whatever. Or the same thing in a scrape area. If, if the uh, crop crops or the mast in the area change where this scrape area is not being active this year, you know you don't hunt it that year. But you got a tree prep there, so if it does become active, you can you can just step in there and hunt. So you don't have to go in and say, oh wow, this is active. Now I got to go out and go get a stand and set this place up and sweat and stink and mm-hmm. you know you got a place prep where you just walk in there, put your saddle on at the base of the tree, climb up the tree and hunt. So you can prep all the locations you want, and you're going to hunt out of the same saddle for the rest of your life. You don't have to Nobody. worry about anybody stealing it or hunting it when you're not there. Or... Absolutely. Nobody's going to do any of that. 
and with a saddle, obviously it's not cumbersome. You know, tree stands and climbers are cumbersome when you're carrying your bow and your backpack. Mm-hmm. You know, I watch uh, Michael Waddell on a TV commercial with a 20-some pound climber on his back and his bow and his backpack walking down a two-track, you know, jumping in a tree with his climber. On public land in pressured areas, you ain't walking down a two-track and hunting something. You're crossing a river. You're going through brush. You're crossing a lake. You're going back to where other hunters don't go. That's where the big bucks are. So walking down a two-track is, is a fairy tale. And that's what makes you successful, right, is you go where people usually aren't willing to go, right? Yeah, if you're hunting heavily pressured land, you have to go where the big bucks are. If the big bucks are pushing back to areas where other hunters aren't willing to make the effort to go. So you got to use waders or hip boots or use a boat or go through a cattail marsh. You've got to access areas that are remote. And a lot of times, once you cross a river, you know, the property may open right back up into nice open timber with some understudy, you know, just like it was, you know, when you walked up to the river from wherever you parked. Uh, but by crossing the river with waders, you've just eliminated 90-plus percent of your competition. Yep. And that's mm-hmm. where that those people have pushed those mature bucks. And those are the only, those remote areas are the only place where they're going to feel comfortable moving during daylight hours. You can have all the sign in the world. There could be 100 scrapes and 500 rubs and three white oak trees in this location on public land. But if it's relatively easily accessible by everybody else, and all those scrapes and stuff, I guarantee you, if there's any mature bucks using those scrapes, it's in the security of darkness. Yep. Sure, you may get a year and a half old buck come in there in the daylight, but you're not going to have an older buck in a pressured area come in and work a scrape in an open area where there's a lot of other hunters. Hey, John, can you do us a favor? Sure. Can you start, can you start um, in a chronological order, starting with the early season on what you're keying on? And what your pl- what your plan of attack is starting in the early season? Early season, I always gear my hunting around food. So, I'm, I'm uh, you know I, I what I do is I prep all my locations in postseason. Like I said, I'm I'm done with all my scouting and location preparation by the end of April, prior to green up in Michigan, and then usually about the twentieth of September. Between the 20th and the 25th of September, I'll make a speed tour. I call it a speed tour because it's not a it's not a scouting tour of my existing locations that are at like a scrape area, an apple tree, a white oak tree, um, a pinch point in a transition route between a bedding and a feeding area, uh, a primary scrape area. I'll put on full scent lock. And I'll just, as fast as I can, leaving as minimal odor as I can, and try. I'll try to do it on a windy or a rainy day. So, so most of the deer will be bedded, and my scent will. What residual scent I might leave is going to dissipate quicker because of the rain and the wind. But what I'll do is I'll make a speed tour of these destination feeding locations, and I will base where I'm going to hunt the first several days off of that speed tour. So, you know, I check all the apple trees. Obviously, if there's no apples, I'm not going to hunt there. Sometimes there's apples on trees, and they'll have scrapes underneath. And the same thing with white oaks. You know, white oaks may have acorns this year, but they won't have acorns for three more years. Well, this year it has, has acorns, and they're dropping. 
So there's obviously going to be, if, if they're getting visited by a mature buck, there's going to be buck rubs within the area. And once in a while, if a white oak tree has a, some low-hanging branches, there might even be a scrape underneath one of them. Same deal with transition routes between bedding and feeding areas. If I've got a pinch point in a transition route with adequate security cover, and I go check it, and it's got adequate runways going from the bedding to the feeding area, there's a possibility I might intercept a mature buck at that spot because obviously whatever the crop field they're going to or feeding location they're going to is a preferred feeding location because they're going back and forth from bedding to feeding. Same with scrape areas, primary scrape areas. Um, you know, there may be a prime, let's say I go in in postseason and I find a primary scrape area, three or four scrapes in a little bit of an open area along the edge of a crop field. I may set up a location there and this would be on obviously knock on doors for permission properties for me. I may set up a location there, but the only time I would ever hunt that scrape area is if that field was in standing corn. Because a mature buck in a heavily pressured area is, even though he may be working those scrapes, he's not going to come out and work those scrapes during daylight hours if those scrapes are exposed right next to a hay field or a soybean field or some low field, you know, a low, low-lying low field where they could physically be seen. But if they've got the security of cover of standing corn butted right up to these scrape areas next to timber, you know, there's an excellent, very excellent chance they would be bedded in the corn and they'd come out, out of the cornfield or out of the timber and check those scrapes during daylight hours. So, so basically, I do my speed tour, and that dictates what locations I'll hunt. Obviously, some locations are morning, some locations are evening. I'd never hunt an apple tree on a morning hunt because you're going to be feeding there, and you're going to spook them with your entry. I would never hunt an oak tree along the edge of a crop field on a morning hunt because I'm going to spook deer with my entry. If there's crops in the area, and I know the deer are going to be feeding out in the crops, and there's an oak, let's say, 300 yards into the timber from the crops, yeah, I would come in possibly from the backside and hunt that oak tree on a morning hunt because it's going to take time for the deer to transition out of the crops to that oak tree as long as it had adequate transition security cover. So that would be a good spot to hunt on a morning spot. But typically, mast and fruit locations are should be hunted on evening hunts only. So um, I primarily look at food, you know, trees that are actually dropping or scrape areas that are actually being active that are next to standing corn or within some form of perimeter security cover uh, or a transition zone pinch point. The transition zone pinch point would be my last, the last thing I would look at because if the destination feeding locations, the apples, white oaks, um, whatever, uh, if those were dropping, they had master fruit, and the scrape areas were active, those would be my go-to spot. So the pinch point would probably not get hunted at all. And that's just early but, season? But if the fruit, yeah, exactly, not during the early season. But if, but if the fruit or the mass trees were not producing, uh, and that transition zone pinch point had a lot of activity because it was be you know, it was between a bedding area and a crop field where they're eating, you know, they're, they're, they may come through that transition zone right at just before dark where they're not going to actually get to the crop field until dark or after dark, if that makes sense. Yep. 
All right. So uh, now that was early season. That's early <laughs> season, right? So you got you have the rut looming. Okay, uh, early to mid November. Now, and from the time that you're hunting food early season, that mid October, what pe- what people call the mid October lull. What what is your plan during that time, and how 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 is it different from the early season in the rut? If you have friends that let you hunt with them, that's when you want to hunt with your friends and screw up their property. <laughs> that's the best way of putting it. If I'm if I'm hunting during the October lull on properties, I have permission or public lands. Um, I'm not going to any. There is no way. I would go hunt any of my rut phase locations because what you're doing by hunting a rut phase location during the October lull when the mature bucks are going to be nocturnal is you're altering doe activity. You know, you're going in, and I know if you guys have been hunting very long, you've seen this. You'll go in and you'll hunt a location for three or two or three times, and the first time you may see six deer. Mm Mm-hmm. The next time you may see four, the next time you may see two. Because even though you may not be spooking deer with your entry or exit, you are making noise going in. And most people, not me, but most people are leaving some form of residual human odor. And those deer that do pass through that area after you leave can smell there's been a human there. So they adjust their, their movements accordingly until after dark. So... You know, all mature buck activity during the rut phases revolves around doe activity. So by a hunter going in and hunting his rut phase locations during the October lull, when mature bucks are typically bedded until after dark, all they're doing is altering doe activity without realizing they're also altering buck activity when they start hunting that place during yep. the rut phase. Because the doe activity isn't coming in through there during the daylight. What I have a, I have a question. I... I... I, and this has just came up. What, why is the October lull the way it is? Is it because that testosterone hasn't built to maximum or is it because they're wearing their winter coats and it's still kind of warm? Why is the buck movement primarily at night uh, other than the hunting pressure? What do you attribute it to? Well, there's, there's three reasons. First off, testosterone, as soon as the buck sheds his velvet, his testosterone levels are growing or are getting higher all the time. So he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't like when he's putting scrapes out maybe preseason at a feeding location in an apple tree, a white oak, or something like that, or next to a crop field. You know, he's putting the scrapes out because his testosterone levels are rising. And they continue to do that during the October lull. It's just they keep their movements primarily after dark. Now, that has to do with two things, human pressure and a change in their security cover. As you notice, when you start getting after the 10th of October, foliage, leaves start to fall, foliage starts to drop, and their whole security cover thing starts to change, dramatically change. So while they felt really comfortable it's the same deal with why you preseason you postseason scout versus preseason scout preseason everything's dense everything looks dense uh whereas postseason you can see through everything you can see a long ways that's the same way as the foliage drops those mature bucks uh lose their lose their uh 
security cover feeling because their security cover is leaving them. So, and then once the pre-rut kicks in, their testosterone eventually get to a point, they get so high that they start thinking with their dicks other than with their brain and start doing things that they know they shouldn't be doing, but they do it anyway because of their testosterone. So this is something you alluded to, and I, I just wanted to go back a little bit. Um, I know that your entrance and exit is very important to you. And why is it so important to have a tactical plan on how you're going to get in to where you're hunting and getting, getting out? Why is that so important to the hunt and your success? I don't know how many times on public land I've been in a tree because I'm typically in a tree at least an hour before daylight and during the rut phases, at least an hour and a half before daylight. In public land and even on the private lands I hunt, there's always other hunters. Because when I knock on doors for free permission, they let other hunters there too. It's just somebody that lets people hunt. So I'll be in a tree and I'll watch people coming in with their lights and they're spooking deer. The deer run by me. And uh, let's, let's take a crop field, for instance. Okay. A lot of people, most hunters, in fact, if let's say there's a soybean field and they have a tree that's, let's say, on the edge of the soybean field or let's say 40 yards inside the soy, off the side of the soybean field in a little bit of timber. Typically on a morning entry, they'll walk down the edge of the soybean field rather than coming in from the backside. Well, what does that do? You know, you may not see deer spook in a field. Once in a while you'll actually see them or hear them or one will snort at you. But you're definitely spooking deer that are out in that field, whether it be soybeans or hay or, you know, milo or pick corn or whatever so you're spooking deer with your entry so if you know on a tree that's let's say on the edge or just you know in the timber from a crop field on a morning entry you'd want to come in from the back side wherever you know you'd want to come in through the timber which you have to make an end some sort of an entry route you have to tack an entry route and i use white tacks on private property and brown tacks on public land so people can't see the brown tacks but i can see them with my flashlight so you have to come in through the back side so you're not spooking anything with your entry. And then when you leave, you don't leave through the back side. You leave, you cut out to the crop field and you walk, you walk out into the crop field like 100 yards and then you walk through the middle of the crop field for your exit. Exactly the opposite for an evening. You know, people will, if there's a crop field and timber next to it, let's say drops down into some timber or some marsh or some swampy area, They'll walk down the edge of the timber to get to their trade. And they spook deer unknowingly a lot of times. They'll spook deer that visually see them, especially during rut phases when the foliage is down, down in the timber, and those flags will go off. Rather than going out in the field about 150 yards, walking through the middle of the field, and then when you get in line with your tree, making a direct beeline from the field to your trees. You're not walking down that edge. You're basically walking right to the edge, right where your tree's at, and just getting in your tree. So you're not spooking deer that are potentially down in that timber with your entry. Uh, it's the same, in, you know, any place. A lot of times I'll make an entry route through the swamp, uh, you know, for a, for a morning entry. And then my exit route after I'm done hunting is, you know, out through the timber. Yep. Because I'm not going to come back through the swamp and spook deer that are bedded. So entry and exit routes are very important. And it's very rare that my entry is the same as my exit. 
All right. Now transit. A lot of guys quads. People drive quads, which is, you know, if you got some micromanaged property where deer are used to quads and, you know, they're not that afraid of humans because they don't get shot at till they're three or four years old, I can see that like you see on TV. Most TV guys wouldn't have a clue how to hunt, hunt pressured public land. They wouldn't even have a clue how to start. But, you know, you drive quads up 200 yards. You don't think a mature buck in a pressured area can hear a quad coming from a couple hundred yards away and say, I'm not going to get up if a, I'm not going to get up and move that direction before dark. Or if I do get up and move, I'm definitely going to go the opposite direction. Yeah. They're not dumb. All right. All right. Well, now we're, we're transitioning, um, as, as the October law is winding down and, and that testosterone is continuing to build. Um, I'm going to simplify for, for just this discussion's sake, I'm going to simplify the rut and, and just some, uh, some phases. Okay. So, Cause I want you to, to talk a little bit about how they're important to you or if they are important to you. I, I call the rut, um, the, the signposting phase, the seek, phase i know it's not this simple the signposting phase seek phase the chase phase the breeding phase and then recovery afterward um this is just i know i know it's a lot more complicated and a lot more is going on but how are you when when you're getting to that time where these first does are starting to come in and the testosterone's building um and some mature deer are starting to move a little bit more in at the end of october in the daylight what's what's your plan of attack and what are the tactics you're using to, to get your the big one killed as far as the rut phases i treat the pre-rut and the rut pretty much the same uh, because in reality although they are different they need to be hunted in exactly the same manner uh the, the, the primary thing i key on the number one thing i key on during the rut phases are active scrape areas i totally abandon you know, if there was a primary scrape area that I might have been hunting on the edge of a standing cornfield, well, if that cornfield is now picked, that scrape area is abandoned by, by me. I don't care how much how much activity it's getting. Uh, odds of a mature buck in the areas I hunt visiting that during daylight are pretty close to zero, so I do not hunt that. Um, but I do hunt a, uh, active scrape areas that may be at a mass tree or at a fruit tree or in a pinch point in a transition zone between a bedding area and a feeding area in another really good spot that nobody really pays attention to are transition areas between bedding areas. Because during the pre-rut, typically most of the very few does are coming into estrus, but the testosterone has reached a level in the bucks where they start actively searching for early estrus does. And obviously does during the daytime are going to be bedded in the bedding areas within their core area. So if there are adequate security transition zones between known bedding areas to other bedding areas, I'm telling you what, that is about as good a spot as you can get because a buck typically will go in, bed down before daylight. They're still going to be nocturnal when they bed, typically. I'm generally speaking here, and they're going to bed in a bedding area, and then they're going to get up typically around 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, and then they're going to scent check the perimeter of that bedding area because they can just scent check the perimeter, and they'll be able to tell if a doe came through three or four hours earlier that was in or close to estrus, and if, if 
there were, then they would take up Chase. But if there were not, then what they're going to do is they're going to take the best security cover available to another bedding area within their core area and do the same thing there. Scent check that for as possible estrostose. And then once they've checked all of the locations where they've had adequate security cover to transition through, um, if they didn't find anything of interest, then they're just going to bed back down and get back up after dark and move out into the crop fields where there's more congested doe traffic and, and you know, search, search there. So midday is a big, big deal uh, during pre-rut and during rut, and also mid, midday is an awesome place to hunt if you've got a transition zone between two known bedding areas. So um, that's a good spot. Primary scrape areas are a good spot if they're active. And like I said, add a, add a mast or a fruit tree that's still dropping that's a phenomenal spot because that's going to have doe activity. Therefore, if there's doe activity, it's going to have mature buck activity as long as there's good transition security cover to it from a known bedding area. Uh, and something else that a lot of managed guys, people that hunt managed properties, make a major mistake doing is not hunting within the confines of the bedding areas on their properties. Now, if you own 600 acres or 800 acres and you're pretty confident that you're keeping the deer on your property and they're not leaving and getting shot off the bordering property owners, uh, you know what, then you're okay keeping something as a, a, a sanctuary area. But if that's not the case, if you're Joe Schmo bow hunter like me and you're hunting a 20-acre parcel and it's got a 7-acre dense bedding area in it of marsh grass or tamaracks or cedars or a cattail marsh if you're not hunting within that during daylight hours you're not a you're not very smart <laughs> because, because that's where most of the chasing and searching goes on and during the actual full-blown rut that's where most of the breeding happens is in within the security cover of bedding areas now with that being said when you do hunt bedding areas, it has to be very specifically done. So when you're postseason scouting, again, you know, February, March, April, that's when you go in, you can blow every deer out of all the bedding areas. You search, you find your little, the best runways where runways are converging, might even be a scrape area in a bedding area. Uh, maybe there's a white oak in a bedding area, or maybe there's a lost apple tree in a bedding area. Uh, you set up a couple locations you tack a couple entry and exit routes because that's another thing. If you, if you, uh, if you mark an entry and exit route with tacks in in the spring, a lot of times you got to make sure that when you come in there with a flashlight in the fall, that you're still going to be able to see those tacks because a lot of times new growth will cover those and you won't be able to see them. So when you are marking routes, make sure that what tax you put up are going to be visible with your flashlight when with your entries and exits. But when you're prepping area, you know, within a bedding area, you want to get up a little bit higher because it's going to be a rut phase only spot. So you want to get up a little higher where you're out of their peripheral vision. You want to get where you got a little bit of wood, maybe some branches coming out, give you a little uh, blockage of coverage. And then during the pre-rut or during the rut, you've the mandatory thing you have to do within a bedding area is hunt all day. 
got to be in your tree an hour and a half before daylight so you're not spooking anything with your entry. And you can't leave until an hour, about half hour to an hour after dark. You want to make sure every deer has gotten up and left that bedding area before you exit and leave the bedding area. So you're not interrupting anything. You also have to have a phenomenal scent control regimen. If you don't, you're going to spook deer. Because in a bedding area, you're going to see deer probably pretty much all day long, and it could be from any direction around you. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on a second. You're telling me that you just don't hunt the wind? What, what, what do you need scent control for? <laughs> I don't. Wind. <laughs> wind is 100% irrelevant to me. So, okay. What do I need scent control? I, I have you're you're talking i have a scent control right you're talking to a couple scent control you're talking to a couple scent control freaks and i and i thought i did it all i looked at your your um your regimen and i i was blown away can you can you tell us about it john hold on one second okay i want to i want to tell you something real quick tommy just looked over at me and started laughing at me because you said (laughs) you hunt from dark to dark, right, during the rut. Yeah. And the reason why he's laughing at me, because we hunt, we hunt specific days of the rut, okay, on our particular properties. And, and he got me into this certain method, and he said, you have to hunt dark to dark. Well, the first day I hunted, it was unusually cold for November, and I wasn't properly equipped. And like Tommy would say, you're a child. And so, and I didn't see anything. It was a windy day. It was a bad day for hunting. And I didn't see anything but a button buck. And about half an hour before, uh, about half an hour of daylight left, I was like, I'm not going to see anything. I got out and I left. And him and I had been texting all day back and forth. And he hadn't seen anything all day either. As soon as I left, about 10 minutes later, he texted me and say, I just said, I just shot one. And so... The next day I went in and I hunted dark to dark and I shot my buck about 10 minutes after I left the previous day. So he's been making fun of me for that. So anyways, I just want to give you that, that quick story. So you both shot bucks in two days. Uh, yeah, I hunted a day and a half. He hunted, he hunted one day and we shot our bucks. And they were both poking you. I'll tell you what, yeah, that's that's awesome. (laughs) But I'm a big, yeah, he. I'm a big advocate of all day hunting. If you're in, got to be in the right type of location. Obviously, you know, sitting in open timber all day is not conducive to killing a big buck. If you're in in something with some adequate cover, you know, where they feel comfortable moving in the daylight, and I don't know what kind of property you guys hunt. I have no clue. Uh, You know, then then hunting during all day is a good deal, but you got to be in there early before the bucks come into bed and you got to leave after they, you know, you got to give them a half hour to get out before you leave. But that, yeah, that's awesome that you, you said that. Yeah. He just, but he, to this day, he, he, uh, he busts my balls over, uh, over, <laughs> over getting out of that ground blind a half an hour early. And, and then he shot his and the next day, if I, if I would have stayed, if I would have stayed, but Back to scent control. (laughs) It's that's interesting. I was working at an in store. I'll try and make this as brief as I can. I was working at an in store, and I had this guy come up, and he was a pretty big guy. I'm not very big. I'm 160 pounds, five foot eight, and uh, we're talking, and he was looking at his sunlock suit, and 
I said, can I help you with anything? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, anyway, we got to talking about deer season the last, the last year. And he said, yeah, I killed my two biggest bucks ever. I said, I couldn't believe it. And I shot them both in the middle of the day. I said, really? What made you hunt in the middle of the day? He said, this buddy of mine lent me this book, which I just had happened to be the, the author of, but he didn't know that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he lent me this book and I read it, and it had this chapter in there about hunting during midday. So I went, and it was the first time I ever hunted midday, I had this little bedding area back on my property. I went in, he said, and at 1230, it was a nice sunny day. I saw a few deer in the morning, hadn't seen anything for like three hours. And he's thinking of all the other stuff he's got to do, which is typical for an all-day city. You always think about other stuff you got to do because you're not seeing crap. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, he texted his buddy and said, you know what? I'm going to give this till 1 o'clock, and then I'm getting down and getting out of here. As soon as he dropped, put his phone back in his pocket, this, this buck came in. And he knew there was five big bucks in the area. He'd been seeing them during preseason in Velvet. So this buck came by. And it's like 110. And then another one came by. And this is all like October 25th, just prior to the, the kicking in the pre-run. Anyway, there was five big bucks. One buck was a monster. So these four other bucks walked by him within 20 yards. And he's like, oh, God, this big one's got to be behind him. Because they kept getting bigger. Each one kept getting bigger than the other. And then he let the fourth one go by and nothing happened. He didn't see the other one. The other one was like 150 incher. Oh, wow. And uh, about 10 minutes later, he heard a twig snap, and here comes that 150 incher, and he shot it, and he gut shot it. So he called his buddy and said, what do I do? I just hit this monster buck that we, you know, that we saw preseason. And the guy said, well, you're supposed to, according to the book, you know, if you shoot it in the guts, if you shot it too far back, just let it go, and we'll come back later tonight and look for it and and in the book i always write you know if you got shoot a deer if there's water in the area there's a good chance it'll die in the water because for some odd reason water soothes the wound and sure as hell they went back in there and found that buck in there's a little pond and it was out in the pond they found it there the next day he went back hunted that same tree and he shot the second biggest buck in that group almost at the exact same time in the middle of the day and he liver shot that one, and it died in the pond, too. <laughs> and when I said, you know what, I wrote that book. That guy grabbed me and gave me a bear hug, almost squeezed my innards out, man. <laughs> it was so comical. Well, how, many books uh, have you, how many books have you written? Three. And what are, you got to give us the names of them. Uh, Bowhunting Pressured Whitetails, I wrote in 2005. Mm-hmm. I wrote Precision Bow Hunting in 2007 and Bow Hunting the Eberhart Way in 2010. And then I also produced four instructional DVDs. They're two hours long each and they're season specific. They're, they're post rut, or I mean, I'm sorry, they're post season scouting and prep, they're pre season scouting and prep, in season hunting and hunting techniques. And the other one was archery mechanics. So uh, I produced four DVDs and I've written three books. And I write for lots of magazines. Their website where you uh, get those? Deer, D E E R, dash the little hyphen, J O H N dot net. Deer hyphen John dot net, and that's D E E R. Or if you just Google my name, they'll pop. It'll pop up. 
Oh, well, I'm, I'm already on I, it. Buddy. I need also we're we're, we're going to get back into it, but I need um, a list of all of the articles. We'll, we'll do it off the air, but I want a list of all the articles that you've written. Um, for, oh my god, for, that's like 200. <laughs> I, I I mean, do you have them listed somewhere? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'd li- I'd like that list. So cuz cuz what we do is we get a lot of information from our for our podcast from uh I've already taken uh information from two of your articles for m- my rut show that we're that we're getting oh, ready to well, record. I'm up we're in some I've got Lever and like 100 and some articles for Woods and Water, which is a regional magazine. And I've written probably 50 for deer, deer hunting, and I've written some for bow hunter, Peterson's bow hunting. And, yep. uh, but I, yeah, I, I can give you a list of them. I don't know if they still have them online or not. I have no clue. Well, deer and deer uh, hunting, all your, all your, um, articles are, are there that you can buy them, uh, by the, uh, the individual, the individual no, you buy the individual magazine, but you can buy the, buy the digital copy of deer. So that's what I did. The two articles that I got of yours that were rut related when, when I was putting my rut show together, um, I got the, those articles online from, so, oh. um, also that, did uh, 26, uh, um, YouTube series for deer and deer hunting or deer and deer hunting last year on hunting public land. I wasn't real happy with how they were edited. Uh, we're going to do some more this year that are going to be a lot better. And I plan on, putting out my own bunch of YouTube videos on saddle hunting this year too. But We're, anyway, back to the scent control. Scent control. The so this, I want to know, number one, what, what was it important to you from the beginning or did you, did your scent control, um, the importance of it evolve? And then over the years, how has your routine evolved and, and directly, how does that directly correlate to your success in the woods? Okay, that's a really pretty <laughs> simple question. To ask. Uh, back in the I don't know maybe the late '80s, you know, I'm all I was always looking at stuff and trying to pick up any advantage I could, and and I followed what Miles Keller did. He used to wear a um, a shower cap, a lady's shower cap, when he was hunting because you you lose so much uh, odor out of your hair follicles off your head. So I started doing that. And, uh, and I started using those sodium bicarbonate sprays. I think uh, scent shield was the first John, one that had that out there and, and, over top of your clothes. And, you know, all, all to me, all those sprays are just a joke. It's sodium bicarbonate and water, which is baking soda. You know, you put baking soda in your refrigerator. Yeah, it does have some absorptive capacity, but it's extremely minimal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, if you took baking soda and put it on your clothing, it just flake right off. Well, basically all you're doing with the sprays is that's sodium bicarbonate and water. And as soon as it dries, you know, there's hardly any sodium bicarbonate there whatsoever. And you'd never get an even spray. And it has extremely minimal odor absorptive capacity as far as absorbing. So you don't um, like the Kent Silling sprays? Oh, then Scentlock came out. And I did a lot of research. Now, typically, not typically, I never believe anything on any hunting website nothing so i research technologies because nobody in the hunting industry has the resources or the financial ability to have their own lab and scientists to develop technologies they all come from other industries either developed by some world 
wide governmental body or somebody like the auto industry or a pharmaceutical company. They come from billion and billion and billion dollar companies, not some $50,000 hunting companies. They can't afford it. So they just tee back off what's out there. So I, I started researching activated carbon and, you know, I found out it is the most absorbent substance known to man. It's used Oh my God, it's used by NASA in spacesuits. It's in, in paint respirators. It's in your water softener. Every chemical, every, every uh, military on the face of the earth uses activated carbon in their chemical warfare suits. It's used to filter vodka. It's used, it's literally used for thousands and thousands of different uh, absorptive capacities. So <clears throat> I bought a Suntlock suit back when they were just a green liner which you wore underneath camo. And to me, anytime you wear something, an exterior piece over top of scent lock, you're compromising your scent control because then you have to take perfect control of the exterior piece. So it helped without question. That old green suit helped. That was in the like 94, 95 maybe. And then I, then they started making camouflage suits and uh, basically it took me about four years to actually learn how to properly care, how to properly store, how to properly use, and what you actually had to use as far as sound like garments are concerned to basically absorb 99% of your odor, if not more. So by about 1997, I was to the point 97, 98, I paid zero attention to wind direction. I mean, I was doing testing on deer. I would, I would, I can remember one test I did. I had this, and this was on public land. I had this big mature doe that would come out and I was usually downwind of her because I was playing the wind earlier and she'd go out into this crop field. And then usually about a half hour later, uh, another mature doe with no fawn would come out. So I waited for the proper wind where the wind was going to be blowing from my tree to that route, which was about 25 yards away. And the first time I sat there, I wore a, a old mossy oak chamois, which is basically a brushed cotton suit. I know my fabrics really, really well because I've sold rags for years. Uh, and as soon as she got the first doe and fawn got downwind of me, I mean, it was instant. She stopped, turned, looked my direction, and just started blowing turn ran back into the cedar swamp and i mean i never saw another deer you know she made so much noise um the next night sat in the same tree had the same wind direction had my scent lock suit head cover drop down face mask scent lock gloves rubber boots i washed my backpack and scent free detergent and she came out she walked down that runway and never lifted her nose nothing she walked down the runway went out into that field and a half hour later the other mature doe came out went by and i did about three or four of those tests and it always worked 100 percent and uh, i just don't get winded and i pay zero attention to the wind the only time i ever pay attention to the wind is when i'm preparing a location so if I'm preparing a location at, let's say, a primary scrape area back in the timber where there's some security perimeter security, security cover, I will typically set it up if I have the option of the correct tree. On the, I will set up on the southeast side of the scrape area, typically about 15 to 20 yards from the actual scrapes. 
because it's pretty common for a four and a half year old buck, three and a half or four and a half year old buck in a pressured area, not to physically come into the primary scrape area during the daylight hours. Uh, sometimes they will, but a lot of times they won't. They'll circle downwind, maybe 40 yards, and just scent check it from downwind and then go on about their business. So if I'm 20 yards from that primary scrape area on the southeast side, you know, I'll hunt that tree when the wind's out of the northwest, which is the prevailing wind in the fall. And then if a mature buck does come downwind, you know, 15 or 20 yards, you know, south, you know, downwind of me, which would be 35 yards downwind of the scrapes, I still have that kill opportunity. And that's happened twice where I've shot bucks that were not coming into the scrapes. They were just checking it from downwind. How so much? anyway, uh, you know, you watch the TV shows. There isn't anybody on TV, the TV that uses scent lock correctly. You'll see them wear a scent lock jacket. They might wear the gloves, but they'll always have some logo hat or maybe a scent lock cap on with their hair hanging out or their beards hanging out with an exposed face and an exposed neck. If you've got if you've got head hair and an exposed neck and a beard exposed, you will get winded. That jacket and pant is not going to take care of you. You have to have a head cover with a drop-down face mask, which is pulled up over top of your nose while you're hunting. And then obviously when you get ready for a shot, you pull it down under your chin so it doesn't impede your anchor point in your shot. But you have to have that when hunting, and you also have to wash your backpack. You know, a lot of hunters, they'll wear a jacket and a pant and a head cover and the gloves and obviously the rubber boots, and and uh, they take this pack that they've never washed. They've had it five years. They get into it with their bare hands every day. It's a huge human scent wick in the tree with them. So when they get winded, what do you think they blame it on? They blame it on the scent like suit didn't work. They don't even think about the backpack having all the human odor on it. So I actually use a scent lock backpack. I had some custom made out of some scent lock fabric. But uh, it, I'm, at the, I'm at the point for the last 17, 18 years where wind direction is 100% irrelevant. A lot of people don't believe that. I really don't give a crap. And how much blowback do you get from the mainstream when, you know, for not playing the wind? I don't get a lot of blowback for not playing the wind. I get a lot of blowback that scent lock doesn't work because – and I don't – I don't really blame it on the hunters that have used it and not had it work because they just didn't know how to properly take care of it, store it, and use it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the instructions that Scentlock gives, in my opinion, are inferior. You know, they say to wash it. You shouldn't wash the suit. You just deabsorb it in the dryer. You can't reactivate it. To reactivate activated carbon, you'd have to put it under pressure at 1,450 degrees Fahrenheit. Obviously, that ain't going to happen. Right. <laughs> so, so to deabsorb it, you just put it in the dryer for 40 or 50 minutes. And then as soon as the dryer stops, you put it in an airtight container so it can't absorb any odors. You don't put any pine boughs in it. You don't hang it outside. It's got to go right into an airtight container. And then when you go hunting, you take it out of the airtight container. You put it on. You go hunting. When you get back, you take it off, put your street clothes back on, put it back in the airtight container. So care, the way you care for it, has everything to do with how it functions, just like anything else. A car's not going to function if two of the tires are flat, yet it still has four tires. So, you know, how, how you 
care for something and how you use it and store it, especially on the scent lock side, is a big deal. If you take, this is going to sound like fallacy, but anybody can look this up online uh, if, they, if they research activated carbon. If you take uh, a one-pound butter tub, you know, those little tubs you get a pound of whipped butter in, and you fill that with activated coconut carbon, which is what Scentlock uses, and you were able to, <laughs> which scientists can do it, obviously, you know, a regular guy can't. If you were able to open up every pore within each particle of activated carbon, all the interior pore surface area, all the exterior surface area, flatten all of those out on a flat piece of ground and butt them all up to each other, it'd cover over 100 acres. Oh, yeah. That's how much surface area there is in a one-pound butter tub of activated carbon particles. How much How much carbon does uh, Scentlock use, you know, in it's their garments? The, 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 the liner that they use of activated carbon, is it's literally paper thin because activated coconut carbon is mm -hmm. really, really tiny. And the reason they use coconut carbon is because the pore, the pore structures in coconut carbon are best suited for the size of human odor molecules. You know, like uh, for chemical warfare suits, they use more of a wood-based carbon because it has bigger interior pores because compound um, those compound molecules are bigger, so it takes a bigger interior pore structure to absorb them. And what the dryer does is it energizes the carbon and it energizes the molecules that are bonded to the carbon. It's just like... Everybody knows that on a concrete highway, there's, there's little strips of rubber every so often. On a steel bridge, there's expansion joints. On any building with a steel interior structure, there's expansion joints. Because on 80, 90 degree sunny days, the concrete expands, the steel expands on a bridge, and if they didn't have expansion joints, Concrete would buckle, the steel would buckle, and the bridge. And, you know, if you had a tall building with a steel interior structure, it'd tip over because it'd buckle. The steel would, would change the shape of the actual building. So, and that's on an 80 or 90 degree sunny day. And we all know that happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, and what that does, the heat from the sun actually energizes the molecules, which causes them to move more rapidly and expand making the steel bigger, the concrete bigger. The same exact process is what causes the mo human molecules to release from the activated carbon pores. Basically, the molecules energize with the heat, so they start moving more rapidly, and the carbon energizes from the heat, and it starts moving more rapidly, and a lot of a real high percentage of the molecules break free from the carbon bond and exit out the dryer. Now, it's kind of like a sponge where eventually you're going to reach a saturation point where the suit is no longer effective for hunting. Right. Uh, typically, they say with average hunting use and proper care and storage, a suit should last about eight to ten years. That's for a guy that hunts like every weekend for, you know, three or four months during the season. That's, that's really good. And cares for it properly. I see guys in sound like suits, you know, in stores, at the gas station, hanging in their foyer, you know, 
and they don't know any better. <laughs> you know, they just right. think I just bought this magic bullet at the cell suit. That's just then they, they get winded shower. and now it doesn't work. No, it, it works. You just don't know what the hell you're doing with it. That's because they didn't want to shower that day. Because you never learned how to how to take care of it. I just put on my scent lock suit and, and that way nobody will smell me. You know, decide not to take. And another thing I get is okay. You know, the typical well, if you fart, you can smell it. Duh. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Right. I can't believe somebody says that. Because obviously when you release gas under pressure through a permeable fabric, because you can you can actually blow air through Mm -hmm. most scent lock suits unless it has a polyurethane membrane and it's waterproof or windproof. So if if you've got a permeable suit, which your savannah is and your uh, full season is of course you can blow air through it and you can smell a fart out the back because it can't block that much that quick. But when you're emitting your human odor off your body, it's not under pressure. It's not in a gaseous under pressure format like a, like breaking gas. And another fallacy is the dog test. Oh, I hear it all the time. Well, they can test it by... Like, some guy wearing a sunlock suit with rubber boots walking out in the field and hiding. And, you know, then they can bring a dog back a half hour later and the dog will track him, track him down. Duh. Any dog, a deer, any animal could do that because basically they can sell, they can smell the ground disruption. Mm -hmm. I've made multiple on several occasions. I've said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you, I will bet a thousand dollars that if I were to go up in a helicopter and be lowered from a couple hundred foot rope down into some sort of a weed field, and you could take your best dog, and I'm dressed the way I want to be in my stunt lock with my rubber boots and the way I hunt, and you take your best dog and you put him 20, 25 yards, walk him downwind of me just like a deer. You know, just, just just on a direct route, I would bet $1,000 that dog would not be able to win me. Now, I because any dog could follow the disruption, breaking grasses and breaking weeds. You know, you if you walked down a river for 200 yards and then got out of the river and, and took off into the woods like you're a prisoner or something, got out of jail... Yeah, if you had a dog walking down the bank, the dog's going to be able to smell where you got out of the river because there's a different smell there. It's a, there's ground disruption, so they would be easily be able to smell that. I've had many times where I've had mature does, especially, cross my entry route, and as soon as they hit it, you know, they, they stop. And they're curious. You know, they smell something. Something's walked through here but they don't know what it is. So they'll turn and follow it a few yards, and then usually they just turn around and keep going the way they were going because it's aroused their curiosity because those are extremely curious, but they couldn't smell any human odor. Cause I guarantee you if they smelled human odor, they would have blew and turned around and left immediately when they hit the scent. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up a, you touched on it earlier and, and I, so I'm sure you agree with me that, and we've talked about it on previous podcasts that, you know, one thing like a scent lock, is not a magic bullet. It, it's, you know, part of a recipe and that you, you've also, you know, you've got to be meticulous about 
taking a scent-free shower and washing a scent-free detergent and wearing your rubber boots and all that stuff to make Well, you don't wash in scent-free detergent. You don't wash it, period. No, no, no. I'm it's just talking about in the dryer. Talking about other other things that are yeah yeah just you know maybe your underwear whatever you know just the other things that you're wearing but i'm i guess my point being is that um it's an effective tool but you can't rely on it on that alone it's i mean you you can't not shower for three days and then throw on a scent lock suit and and go out and expect not to be winded i guess i'll tell you what you could you could Mm -hmm. as long as whatever part of your face was clean. If you washed your face down with scent-free wipes, three or four scent-free wipes, and you had your hair covered, you know, your neck your neck covered, but you washed around your eyes and your nose and your mouth, you know, wash that down really, really well. The scent lock exterior suit will pretty much take care of anything underneath it. Obviously, the better you take care, the less the fewer odors you have on your undergarments, uh, or the less odor you're expelling out of your body, obviously the less work the activated carbon particles have to do. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I would have no problem getting out of work. Back, I've worked in a lot of factories. Back when I worked in a factory, getting, as long as I have an exterior scent lock taken care of properly, scent lock exterior pants, jacket, head cover, drop-down face mask, gloves, Clean rubber boots. I would never, ever wear rubber boots the first year I buy them because they always have a strong rubber odor. So mm-hmm. I always leave them at least a year or two before I wear them for hunting. Uh, but you have scent-free boots uh, and a clean backpack. Yeah, you you should be good you because should, uh, the carbon will that. take care of anything underneath it. Obviously, it's better if you're clean. I always try to take a, right. a shower, but I definitely don't always get to do that. No, and that's interesting for sure. So I got um, the what's in your pack? What's in your what do you take out there with you? Oh my God! Uh, depends on the time of year, obviously. So we'll just right. say whatever layer garments I need for the weather. Uh, you were talking about getting cold. I'm a huge body warmer fan. Grab. There's a company named Grabber that makes adhesive body warmer, which pretty much negates cold weather. Uh, these pads were made for patients with arthritis, and uh, they I was fortunate enough to get them into the hunting market because they sent me some accidentally, and I tried them, and they were like godsend. So these pads, these grabber adhesive body warmers on really, really cold days, when I, I mean, when it's like 20 or below, um, once I get on stand and I redress, because I always dress light going to my stand and getting up the tree, and then I redress in the tree, um, and then I let my body cool down, and then I'll undo my layers, and I'll put one of those body warmers right over my sternum, and then typically one on each one over each of my kidneys, and then I'll close everything back up. And they only get to 140 degrees, which is what's really cool about them, because if you take a hand warmer or a toe warmer and you put it there, there's a good chance they'll burn you because they, they're they totally controlled by how much air they get. These body warmers are just controlled. They just go to 140 degrees, and then they, they don't get any warmer. So those things will keep you warm no matter the weather. And they last 12 hours. So let's say you hunt on stand for four or five hours. You can actually pull them off before you get out of stand, put them in a Ziploc sandwich bag, seal it back up, and they'll they'll deactivate, and then, you'll get two uses out of them. When you open the nice. bag back up and let air back in to them, then they start working again. 
So those things I always have in my pack. I carry an inhale and an exhale grunt call. I carry a rattle bag. I carry a, um, a hand saw. I carry, obviously, a gutting knife, a pelvic saw. Uh, I carry a 40-foot bow rope. I carry a range finder. Um, I carry extra batteries. I carry three different flashlights. I, I do all my entry routes with a single AAA flashlight because I don't want to have much of a beam. I just want to be able to see my tags in my entry route. I would never, ever wear a headlamp because that shines all over the place. Um, and deer see that. So, you know, I have a trip, single AAA entry light and exit light, and then I have two other flashlights for blood trailing deer if I need to. I uh, carry an extra key to my van because I've locked myself out of my vehicle a couple of times. Uh, I carry a pee bottle. I carry a water bottle. I carry toilet paper, uh, compass, because a lot of times when you're uh, blood trailing the deer after dark, and again, I hunt by myself. If you're in an area where there's no road traffic, uh, it's real, real easy to get turned around, yeah. so I carry a compass. I carry tacks, reflective tacks, because if I do recover a deer after dark and I'm back in some junk, you know, I'll typically mark the spot where the deer is after I gut it and mark a, my route out because if I come back with help in the dark, uh, it'll, so that way it'll be easy to find because a lot of times deer, it's hard, they're hard to find in the dark <laughs> once you leave them someplace. Yep. Come back and it takes you an hour to find where you left it. Uh, so I take tacks. Um, uh, what else? I carry a gallon Ziploc uh, freezer bag because a lot of times early season I'll wear a t-shirt in underneath my scent lock and if it gets any perspiration on it if I'm sweating I'll have another t-shirt in my pack and I'll take off the perspired one put it in the ziplock bag and seal that shut and put on the let my body cool off and then put on the dry one um, that's well, probably about it so um, I want to preface this by saying you are invited back to Rut Ambush podcast anytime. Um, the uh, the I'm gonna have to. Li- I'm I'm one of those. I'll listen to a good podcast three or four times and take notes, and then go back. I'm definitely gonna listen to this one and take notes. I, I've already learned. I feel a little bit more confident. I think I'm gonna be able to kill a deer this year. What do you think, Chad? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. so <clears throat> but let That's me ask cool. you. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, if you were if you were talking to the the young first year hunting John Eberhart, what advice would you give him? Do it exactly the way you did it. Very. No, I, I shouldn't say that. Um, there's a lot of inform. There wasn't a lot of information out back when I started hunting in the '60s. Uh, there's a lot of information out there now, but a lot of it, 90% of it's just BS. You know, the TV stuff's all BS. If you're on pressured property, that TV stuff should not even be listened to other than for entertainment because it has nothing to do with what the type of deer you're hunting. None of that stuff works where you're hunting normally. Um, so just be very cautious what type of information you're reading. And, and obviously, if you're a novice hunter, you don't really know what to and what not to believe. So... Uh, Learn the type of area you're in. Try to keep track of what the other hunters on the same property are doing and hunt around them in what 
whatever you do, I don't care where you go hunting, always keep the words security, perimeter, cover, or security, transition, cover in your mind. Once you learn how to kill mature bucks in a pressured area where everything revolves around security cover, you can kill bucks any place else in a pretty short period of time. Great advice. Okay. Great advice. So, John, I, I, one more thing, okay, before we let you go. I know it's running a little long. and, and uh, I don't care. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so if – I, we talked before. I know you like to kind of answer questions like off the cuff. So here's one: if you've got I one, I haven't read any of the stuff you guys sent me. Right, <laughs> right. No, and that you know that's cool. But if you have one thing that would be controversial, that uh, something that you do or or believe in to the mainstream, what would it be? Well, the one thing I. Not, there's no question the thing I do that's controversial to the mainstream is I tell people that I pay zero attention to the wind. Yeah, and they absolutely. don't believe me. That's yeah. hands down number one. But that's if they don't want to believe me, it's because they don't want to do the work to find out how to actually do it and do it correctly. Well, and you and I had talked earlier, and and I told you it's funny because that's exactly the way Tommy and I hunt. We we're very scent uh, control conscious, and at least the way my property works. Um, because I don't have very much. I have 10 acres, but I'm surrounded by about 150. That's f low pressure, or no pressure. He's, so. he, he's he's in he's in some good woods. He just doesn't have very. He doesn't own very right. Much so I've got to I've got to use tactics to bring the deer to me. However, there is nowhere on my property that I can hunt that has the wind in my favor. So I always have the wind at my back blowing into the bedding areas and into the deer woods and usually where tommy's at he's kind of the same way so we're very scent control oh conscious yep. and we're we're still successful so there are you i mean it is possible i mean so oh, yeah, without I a doubt i shot deer before i ever used scent control i yeah. shot a lot of nice yeah. deer but I, my my success ratio now per hunt is way higher than it ever used yep. to be mm -hmm. i hunt are less now than I did in the 70s and 80s and through the mid 90s, but but I hunt a lot smarter. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and my scent control is is to the point where I just wind is irrelevant. So yeah. you know any any hunter as they age they should hunt hunt smarter. But I see a lot of them that don't. They just hunt the same old generic methods all the dang. Yep. Most of the guys that, that hunt on properties I hunt on hunt the same exact way. Now, there's one guy on one piece of property that I hunt uh, that's kind of close to my house. Other than my other spot I hunt that's private, it's like two and a half hours away and everything else is public. Um, he took me up on my scent control regimen, and he's turning into a threat because he – He's not getting winded, and he doesn't pay attention to wind now, and he's starting to kill some nice bucks, so I kind of <laughs> kick myself in the butt for giving yep. him my second roll. Yep. He got some zero competition now. now. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, John. That's uh, okay. I'm, I'm happy for him, so that's great. Dude, it, hey, it's been awesome having you on. I mean, you know, just, I mean, your insight. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, 
It's pretty cool, man. And, Th- uh, this is what I would consider like a master's level deer hunting education that you gave us today. And, and, and it's like the, for, for someone just starting out, it, it's go, some of this stuff's going to, going to go over their head. But, uh, but, but the, the, I mean, that's, that's what it takes to kill the bucks that all they have to do is survive. And, you know, uh, that's, that's the kind of information we need to go to, to, to start hunting those big, big deer. Yep. I'll tell tell you what, I'll tell your viewers something that I always kick myself in the butt for telling, but, uh, if anybody would like, uh, my information on scent control and the proper care of scent lock products, because there, there's definitely a proper way to care and store stuff. Uh, if they want to send me an email, all they have to say is, please send your scent control regimen. And okay. my email address is D-E-E-R-J-O-H-N-5-1 at gmail.com. Now, it may take me a week or two to reply if I'm busy working because I have a real job, <laughs> but I will eventually get that to you. Yeah, and well, real quick, um, and again, something else that you and I talked about, but uh, you were on the YouTube channel, G2 Outdoors, and you go pretty into depth there with your um, how you store your stuff and, um, you know, the stuff you take they out. They thought with I you. did. I did not think I did myself when I watched it. I thought it was pretty quick, and that was all unscripted. That was just spur of the moment. But somebody can search that and kind of get a visual representation of what you do as well as you know emailing you and, and getting that information that way so okay. um, why but, is my email on there someplace did i mention it there uh i'm not sure if you mentioned it there i'm just saying you know okay. what you did you just mentioning your email so if they email you and you send them your, your scent control stuff and then you know if they want to get a visual representation they you know oh, watch okay. a video like that and uh so real quick give your website one more time and also if there was one book off your website that somebody would want to buy which one would that be okay the website is d-e-e-r hyphen that's the little dash j-o-h-n dot net so it's dear hyphen john dot net and my my email address is on my website on the home page mm-hmm. um if I had to buy one book, and there's no there's no need to buy all three books, um, I would say Precision Bow Hunting, my middle book. It seems like most people like that. The Bow Hunting White Tails, the Eberhart Way, is really in depth. It's a little bit deeper. So if you if you've been hunting a long time, that would be the one. But if you're if you're more novice or you've only been hunting like five or ten years, I, I would say Precision Bow Hunting. Okay. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at it right now, so they're reasonably priced, and uh, so awesome, man. Hey, would you be uh, willing to come back and and talk to us here in sure. here in the future? Absolutely. Awesome, man. I I really appreciate it, dude. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, Thanks so much, man. Appreciate your time. Okay. Yeah. Hey, you're welcome. And uh, I don't talk to you before fall. Good luck. All right. Oh, you'll talk Everybody. to us before then. We'll, we'll, we'll keep in contact, <laughs> yeah. John. I promise. Okay. All, All right. right, Chad and Tommy. Thank you. Thanks, All right, John. Brother. Take care. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. John's just a good guy, uh, down to earth. He's just he was a he was fun to talk to. He's just one of those guys that you feel that you can sit down and have a beer with, and, and talk hunting for hours on end and not get tired of it. And and Tommy talked about it in the interview that you know that's a master levels education that 
that he just gave us there and so and it's it's a lot to take in and for even even you experienced hunters that that's just this is a podcast that you might want to just listen to a couple times just so you can grasp everything i, I know i'm going to i'll definitely listen to it a few times um, just so i can grasp everything that he's talking about so i hope you guys enjoyed the interview it was a fun interview to do he's a fun guy to talk to so if you guys got any uh, comments, concerns, questions, anything like that, you can email me, chad at rudambush.com, tommy at rudambush.com. You can uh, find our contact information on our website, rudambush.com. Uh, give us a call, text us, email us, whatever. Um, we're happy to talk to anybody. So uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. So until next time, thanks for listening to the Rudd Ambush Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Rut Ambush Podcast with Chad Cottle and Tommy Engram.